Hello, and welcome to the Leukemia Chatters podcast. I'm Charlotte, Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. Today, we chatted to Trudy and Julie. A diagnosis of leukemia has an impact on your whole life, but an often forgotten part is working and the subsequent impact on your finances. I explored this with the ladies and how their shared profession and their shared diagnosis impacted on their lives. So today I am joined by Trudy. Hello. Hi Trudy and also by Julie. Hi Julie. Hi. Thanks for joining us ladies. Um, So today we've brought Trudy and Julie together for this particular podcast um, as they have a few things in common which I hope you will all hear as we uh, chat this afternoon. Um, Maybe we'll kick off with a bit of introduction. So Trudy I wondered if you wanted to start by explaining to the listeners uh, who you are why you're on the podcast today, uh, what you were diagnosed with, etc. Well, my name's Trudy and I am 55 now, but when I was 52, I very suddenly became um, acutely unwell over really a few days, although obviously with hindsight, you think about other things, but essentially became very, very ill and um, it was difficult to know exactly what was happening but I was very conscious of being seriously unwell although I wondered if I had sepsis and I kind of forced my way into hospital where it was revealed that I had um, acute myeloid leukemia and at that point I had also had uh, liver failure and kidney failure clotting was up the creek it was an acute horrible time a family were told there were 50-50 chance of surviving the next few days. Lots of that part of my story I I don't really remember very well but essentially I then went on to have chemotherapy and several rounds of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant and this was all between March and September 2018 and then I was discharged and in retrospect had a reasonably smooth ride although that's a, a massive euphemism, as anyone who's gone through it will know. Had some complications during that inpatient period, but they were all, well, survivable. I'm here to tell the story now, the moment. And then I had to spend nearly the next six to nine months off work and home-based, very much as people are experiencing in COVID. I wasn't allowed to mix. I couldn't see any family. I couldn't see my grandchildren. I certainly couldn't drink alcohol or eat freely. Everything had to be sterilised and clean. I couldn't drink my tap water. I had to boil all that. I started to get back to normal life to some extent by the end of 2019 and actually returned to work, which I'll come on to in a moment. But very quickly, I picked up uh, a bug and I was hospitalised again with a pneumonia. And then as I recovered from that, the COVID story was emerging. So then I went straight back into another past year of essentially the same kind of restrictions due to both the um, subsequent results of, of having AML and a stem cell transplant and COVID. I was diagnosed in July last year with a secondary immunodeficiency syndrome due to cell transplant, which is just seems to have destroyed my ability to produce my own B cells, my own antibodies. So I now infuse myself weekly with immunoglobulin at home. And that's just another of the complications of having AML. I've been lucky enough that in the 
two and a half to three years since the stem cell transplant, I have stayed in remission. The career story is that at the time of diagnosis, I was really at the height of my career in many ways. I'd achieved chief nurse director of nursing level and worked full time all the hours that there were. Uh, never really stopped. I was a wife, a mum, a granny, a daughter, looking after all those people as well as a really huge job. And then it just stopped. It literally stopped with AML. That was it. It really, truly is the rug pulled out from under your feet or being hit by the bus. I couldn't do any of those things for a very, very long time. Career-wise, the diagnosis back in the very beginning of March 18, I did start contributing from home in about a year later, just really as I wanted to. And because I had a senior role, there were a lot of things that I could do from behind the scenes, fortunately. But the organisation I worked for, despite being at the senior level, you were expected to be a practitioner as well. So I was a frontline nurse practitioner at the same time as holding the chief nurse role. That part of my job, it was impossible to return to at that point. So move on another kind of six months. And I had tried by then to return to everything, really. It soon kind of dawned on me that that wasn't going to be realistic. I think the the kind of consequences, both emotionally and physically, of what I've been through were just too overpowering, really, to cope with the demands of that kind of role. Particularly, I think the emotional side in the um, senior part of my job. Funnily enough, the part where I was working with patients was actually easier to manage and It had its own other issues, which maybe we can talk about as we go on. But within it, I had a three month period where I did actually do clinical work again. But that's exactly when I picked up the pneumonia. So then it was back behind the scenes again after that. I think maybe we'll bring in Julie at this point, if that's all right, Trudy. Your introduction there really shows how AML impacts everything to do with your life. I mean, you talked a lot about work, but you also mentioned grandkids and things there. I think that's a really important point to start from and I will definitely pick up on a lot of those issues in a bit but let's just bring in Julie. Julie could you just sort of introduce yourself to the listeners for us when you were diagnosed what with and and a bit about how it's impacted on you? Yeah no so I'm quite similar really. I was a lead advanced nurse practitioner when I was diagnosed back in 2016 and managed a team of 16 plus an acute pain nurse and plus Uh, We manage deterioration across the hospital. I work in a specialist cardiothoracic centre. So I had a very high-powered, very busy job, lots of fingers in lots of pies, always involved in lots of the acute stuff that was going on and well-respected and and obviously then asked to, you know, pick up lots of things. So I went from being that person to being ill within the space of a day I did have slightly longer sort of, I'd gone through a marriage breakup, um, unfortunately, about 18 months to two years before that, which I think hit me very, very hard. And um, whilst I painted a smile on my face at work, my own personal life was sort of falling apart. And I wonder whether that was sort of the catalyst maybe for my immune system that, you know, huge amounts of stress and trauma that obviously that all brings with having to move house, sell your house, 
I had, you know, children, brother-in-law with learning difficulties. And, you know, again, same as Trudy, really, lots of different responsibilities and things that my personal life added into the mix as much as my professional life did, really, which, you know, I capably managed up until that point. Uh, I was diagnosed after a sort of short period of tonsillitis type um, in illnesses and which wouldn't go away with antibiotics. Uh, they then thought it was glandular fever. So signed, my GP signed me off for a couple of weeks thinking I needed a rest and then um, sent bloods off, luckily, because we didn't quite know what was going on. And then that afternoon I was told to get to A&E and did and then was delivered my diagnosis that night and never left hospital until possibly after the third cycle of chemotherapy. So I spent about three months in total in hospital. It became apparent after the first round of chemotherapy that I had refractory uh, acute myeloid leukemia, so the same as Trudy. And then because of that was sort of headed towards bone marrow transplant. And I had that in September 2016. And then the recovery uh, as Trudy has already explained, really, which is quite intense and, you know, you feel quite vulnerable. Uh, I live on my own with my daughter, obviously, because of my personal circumstances. So, again, that's quite fraught with vulnerabilities. And so family um, needed to sort of rally around. And my mum, although healthy, is 76 and it's taken a toll on my mum. So she was becoming unwell as well. So you know, it was all, all in all, it was quite a, a turbulent and very distressing and um, very difficult time, to be honest. I was just getting away. In fact, I had got back to work, uh, not quite in the role that I left because somebody had been acting up for me uh, while I was on, on leave for the year. My trust had been very supportive, actually, and were just giving me projects and things to do just to get my to build my hours up on a phased return. But again, like Trudy, luckily I was at a senior grade, so I could pick up lots of different things. And I had lots of experience in managing investigations, projects and all sorts of things. So it was I was lucky. But I only got back to work for two weeks, found out that I'd relapsed and then was back off again with chemotherapy and then ended up having a donor lymphocyte infusion, which uh, was a top up of my donor cells. I then had some GVHD complications after that. And I took, I don't know, maybe six months to get myself back to work after that. And then since then, so that would have been 2018, early, early 2018. And then since that time, I've been sort of gradually increasing my hours and picking up responsibilities. I have actually um, been promoted in that time to nurse consultant. So but I did, I have, and, and continue to find things very hard. Unfortunately, like Trudy, I have developed an autoimmune problem. So I have my senior gravis, which has been developed as a result of immune, you know, donor-mediated GVHD. That, uh, that's what the team thinks. So... And unfortunately, through the process of the last 18 months trying to treat me for quite debilitating my senior gravis, I have relapsed because they've had to immunosuppress me. So I'm obviously currently now off work, sick again. So kind of that's the, the general gist of sort of my story, really. 
thank you both for for bringing us sort of up to speed on your situations if anybody wants to read more both judy and trudy's uh stories are on our website um not as recent as this so maybe we can use it to update people but um there is plenty more for people to find out there wow where to start i i I think (laughs) one of the things i was really keen to chat about was about the fact you were both nurses and whether that changed your experience at all so I'm talking about diagnosis, about treatment. You're used to treating people. Did it change how you felt about going through an illness so severe yourself? Trudy, do you want to start? Oh, gosh, I think it has. I mean, latterly, I've been doing some work um, as an expert patient and lived experience for a local university, actually. But I find it in the same way that I find it impossible to only be an expert patient. I can't divorce my professional experience. And in a similar way, that's the same as what's happened through my illness. Although I have to say initially, as I was so ill, um, I just had to let go of everything because When I've been a patient before for sort of more routine type things, you know, if you've got a drip, you're watching every moment to make sure there's not an air bubble and you're you're wanting to do everything exactly as you would do it. But when you're acutely ill, I have to say, which I've never experienced illness, you know, never been ill like that before. You just lose all of that and you don't even recognize yourself and you're immediately all of your physical features have started to change with your not just your hair falling out, which being the most dramatic, but you know, things were changing. My, my tongue went black. My t- gums were falling apart. It, I didn't recognise the person that I physically saw. And I also didn't really recognise the person I was because you, you very swiftly turn into the patient. And that's a really difficult place to be for anybody. I, I'm absolutely 100% certain. But when you have been the person that comes in with the IVs or the person that comes in, you know, with it to do the OBS, it's really, it's a very challenging and very difficult situation. And I think there are things that as a professional, you just don't think about, but as a patient line, I mean, I absolutely detested always having to go through my number, my patient number and my date of birth. I don't know if Julie felt the same, but you know, these people, they know you, they know exactly who you are. <laughs> They've told, asked you a million times, we know them. And I know it's just a process. I know that everyone has to do that. But it was really one of the things that I really blooming hated. And I don't know why, but I don't know if that is because I was a professional as well as a patient. But um, as I then sort of went through the process, I think, you know, stem cell transplant is such a tough tough ordeal it's not just having that it's all the lead up and um even things like having the um the hickman line that was one of the things i found really unpleasant (laughs) and people are so uh, healthcare professionals can be so blasé about some of the things that they do to you and latterly when i was told about my immune problem and that i had to infuse myself every week with 40 mils of immunoglobulin, two little syringe drivers in my belly. I just was, I was so upset and I don't, and and the healthcare professionals were very like, you know, but children do this and it's, you know, it's not, and you're not having to go into hospital and nothing really. And I'm thinking, 
Well, it's easy for you to say that, but everything that you've been through, you just don't want any more. I mean, I'm saying this and I'm really aware that Julie's going through more at the moment. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you just, you do become aware of when colleagues are not as um, kind of, when they're not as aware as you need them to be. And that's very difficult to tolerate, I think, when you're both a patient and a professional. But as I got stronger, I did get better at managing that. And I felt a bit more comfortable at being both of those. Yeah, you guys are in a great position to also spread the message that you're trying to get across there to ask them to be perhaps a bit more kind as well. Judy, does that reflect your experience as well? Has it? Have you faced the same challenges? Yeah, sort of, although I'm probably more of a control freak than Trudy. (laughs) (laughs) It probably shows that uh, I don't like to lose control over (laughs) even my own situations because I find myself quite quickly becoming my own advocate and I would notice quite quickly when things weren't quite right and would, you know, and, and then you get into this sort of circumstance where you don't want to be the difficult patient. You don't want to be the one that's causing um, trouble or saying anything that you, you know, that you're witnessing or observing that things aren't being done uh, quite well. I will say that through the first years, couple of years, you know, the first sort of years of my diagnosis, I picked up on quite a lot that has actually helped me because antibiotics that had been stopped that I queried actually shouldn't have been stopped and were continued. When I was dehydrated, I asked for fluids and I probably, as a result, picked up quicker than I would have done had I left it to somebody else to notice. So I was deteriorating. And I think some of that's to do with my job that I came from, that I spent you know, years developing and building a team, that that was my bread and butter, really. So I have times that sort of stick into my head, actually, of those first years where, um, and first, first rounds of chemotherapy, where I found myself nearly collapsing in bathrooms and being surrounded by people who just wanted to pick me up and put me on a commode and get me out of the bathroom when I knew that I was going to faint if they did that. So again, the control freak within me kind of wants to t- tell them, don't do that yet. Just leave me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to stick my head between my knees <laughs> and then I will be fine, I promise. But if you sit me up on this commode, I will be gone. <laughs> and then, you know, you get back and you um, quite frighteningly are surrounded by very junior nurses who actually don't all would know what they should and shouldn't be doing. So those sorts of circumstances have actually been quite frightening in themselves and and have left me feeling a little bit vulnerable. I can also remember a time when I was admitted, because every time you go home and you have to come in back in for sepsis, which is not a very nice circumstance, you have to come back into A&E and then they have to try and get you a bed on the on the hospital, which is a lot of the time and as an outlier on a different ward. And then they ha- you have to wait until the bed's available on the haematology, oncology area. And a lot of those times have been quite frightening where you've been put in places where they aren't used to looking after such ill 
an acute uh, septic patient. So I think possibly similar to Trudy, when I have been able to advocate for myself, I have, and my nursing background has helped and supported that. And I have found that I've been able to articulate and communicate it well as well, because patient assessment was my bread and butter. So I know what I'm looking for and I know how to talk about it to get what I want. But in the times when I've been really ill and not been able to advocate for myself, I felt very, very, very vulnerable. Mm. And this is, I think, where it's important for people like a leukemia care to try and encourage self-advocation, but also, you know, supporting the family and things. Yeah, I've been surprised, actually. I don't know what Judy thinks, but because um, I obviously sit in a bed for, a, a, you know, and have in, on, on, in my journey through hospitals um, watching what every, everything is going on around me, especially when you're in a Bay Area and you can see lots of different things. And it's amazing, actually, the care that sort of I know I should be receiving and therefore I can advocate for what anti-emetics I should be having, what I'm written up for, what my drugs are. I understand what all my drugs are and when I should have them and the frequency I should have them. Whereas I watch day in, day out, and this admission is no different, where people don't understand and don't know what they can and what they can't have and therefore do not advocate for themselves. And they're relying on a very stretched nursing and medical team to advocate for them and they just haven't got time to do that. Trudy did you want to come back on that? Yeah it's a really good point and it reminds me of um, one thing that I was quite vocal about was not having clexane when that was doled out for me when I was walking from the basement to the top of the stairs twice in of eight levels of the hospital um, and walking round and round and I couldn't understand any rationale to start messing around with my delicate platelets again and so I said I'm not having that and they were they were actually absolutely fine with me I must say and I've been in two hospitals one the more local more provincial one where I worked in an affiliated team with them and um, they were always really amazingly supportive and understanding and then in the much bigger acute hospital for the transplant which was harder because that was much more clinical and acute but um but less personal but I I agree with you Julie I mean I think that being on the ball it's even things like I mean I'm on uh luckily I only take two oral tablets um well, four tablets, but two different things a day now. Um, but even those, you know, I know why you need to take it on an empty stomach. And, you know, so you you make sure that you do that. And especially if you have picked up some kind of infection or something like that. So I do think those additional, and I think Julie was, you're a practitioner, so you're probably a prescriber as well, aren't you? So as I am as well. So you, you know, you've you've done that background knowledge that underpins how the drugs work, how they affect your body and why there's a reason, but which then allows you to take them properly or say, do you know what? I don't need that. Yeah. I'm not having it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm sure it does. So yeah, it does make a difference. Since I got diagnosed, I've have found that on certain days I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot 
I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Anne Ashley Counselling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. I want to change tack very slightly, if I may, and come on to sort of more generally working or returning to work after or during such an experience as this. I mean, Trudy, you started by just telling us a bit about how it's been. It sounds as if your work have been fairly supportive. Is that a fairer assessment? Uh, they have been supportive, yes, definitely. But they're also, I think, like many people, don't really understand the real impact of going through what, what we go through and just the length of time and the fragility of our bodies and minds if you like afterwards for such a long long time if not forever I think and I don't blame people for not understanding that because I didn't understand all that and I'm a healthcare professional so I get that so yes they were supportive but some of the practical stuff when I came back and realized that I couldn't do it anymore uh, I couldn't work full-time in the director of nursing post I could not do that And then I was a bit on my own, I would say, to be perfectly honest, to the point that I have now, I had to face, once I got diagnosed in the summer with the secondary immune deficiency problem and the weekly infusions and within the COVID that's hit us for the last year, so obviously like everyone else, I've been a a clinically extremely vulnerable shielder, it, it brought me to the point of accepting that I could not actually be a nurse anymore. And I'm literally going through the most painful, difficult process. Not only is it difficult to get your head around, which I have got my head around more or less, although that just made me feel a bit upset saying that, but the practical bureaucratic process of doing this is ludicrous to the extreme. And I do feel very on my own with all that. My work haven't been terrible. They've tried to help me, but they don't. Sounds a bit awful, but they don't really know what they're doing because I'm quite complicated. So that's been very, very difficult, very difficult. And I'm now find myself, my last paycheck will be in 22 days and I don't know what my pension is. I don't even know if I'm getting all three parts. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but I think you make an important point there about an assumption that you'll just get back into what you were doing before. From your side, but also from your work side, it sounds like that wasn't particularly helpful. Julie, is that, how, how has that been for you? You said you had a promotion at the beginning and things, and you said work were fairly supportive, but has, it, has there still been challenges for you? Yeah, no, I, I, would, I would agree. I think um, I pushed for the promotion because I felt I was trying to push for it before I left. And that was um, one of the things probably that led to sort of the, some of the frustrations and because I was working at that level, but not really being recognized for it. And then when I came back, they were very, they have been very supportive and sort of financially, again, tried to support as much as they could. But I came back to people sort of above me making lots of different comments about sort of, you know, 
had I considered ill health retirement when I was actually only just getting back to work. And actually that really upset me. Um, And I lost, not just because of that, but I lost a lot of confidence. I would also say that I've probably got an element of PTSD because certainly going back into, you know, I wouldn't think anything of chairing meetings and going into big groups and, and doing things. And I would get anxiety and, and you know, not quite know and, and sort of get myself a bit worked up before going into meetings, which, you know, I, I worked through all on my own because nobody understood really. You sort of, you think, come on, pull yourself together. You know, you've done all of this before. You know what you're doing. You know what you're talking about. There's also the brain fog and the, you know, the forgetting of words and the um, complete fatigue that you get that sort of starts to make you look as though you don't know what you're talking about, but you do. <laughs> well, I like to think I do, which is another sort of big thing. It took me, I think I came back on 15 hours then I went up to 24 hours, but we're talking months. And they did try and put me on a normal phased return, which was completely ridiculous. Um, and to realize that quite quickly that was not going to work. And then somebody very sensible in occupational health had my back and just said, no, you know, that's uh, so. I, but even so, I still had to take the hit in my salary to do 15 hours, 24 hours, and then work my way back up to full time. It did take me about 18 months to do that, actually. And I would say that even in those 18 months, I struggled. And then I'm very, very much like Trudy. As soon as COVID hit, I've, been, I've spent the last year as a, a clinically extremely vulnerable working from home. And I think it's only down to my banding and my grade and my experience that I've been able to do that because... I've picked up everything that the clinical teams haven't been able to do. So I have felt useful and I felt part of the team, but again, quite isolated. And as Trudy says, I, uh, you know, as, as sort of made me realize that, well, actually I would say because of my myasthenia diagnosis, I wouldn't have actually still been able to be at work if I had not have been working from home during COVID. So it's been a bit of a silver lining for me. I've been able to pick up lots of things. And again, work have been very, very supportive. I am now, and I I listen to Trudy with trepidation because I have now decided to go down the route of um, ill health retirement although I've only discussed that with Oki Health at the moment, not work. So I hate to know what's been in front of me. Oh, it's so good to listen to you because like you, you know, I work, I carried on working in this last year and some of it was more, it was to my benefit that everyone was working from home. So doing appraisals and things like that I could do for the team, doing them on, on Zoom. And there was an element of clinical work I could do supporting the nursing homes through the crisis as well. But the reason that I got to that point, because like you as well, someone very early on said about ill health retirement, and I was very angry at that point and very upset. I needed to get back to it to prove to myself that I couldn't do it and then make my own decision in my own time. But, and and look, the brain force come now because I forgot what I was going to say, because I used to do 
so many things. I used to speak at national level. I've had, I was running multiple hospitals, only community hospitals, but still, you know, lots of things. Yeah. And I definitely, I felt, I think the PTSD comment you've made is absolutely true. And I would feel things like the reason I couldn't function at a really senior level was because I felt so much like I was either going to punch people in the face or burst into tears yeah, all the time. Do you know, I found the emotional, um, the, the sort of personal um, emotional um, conflict really hard to deal with once I got back to work. I just, I would, it would really floor me and, and sort of um, affect me, whereas it didn't necessarily mm. beforehand. Mm. I found it difficult. I've never been one that sort of, you know, mm. find it easy to, to sort of take somebody down capability or to, to talk to somebody about their performance. But I really, really struggled, oh, with, no. you know, when I got back. Yeah. And I had a huge, yeah, a huge financial hit. And, you know, I, I've been only working 15 hours and of course my pay grade was lowered considerably to do the work that I've been doing. And because I didn't, go down the ill health retirement at the time I just said I can't do it I can't do it I've got to leave I can't do it and I wrote a resignation letter and they just said well we don't want you to go just stay on you know for a couple of days a week supporting whoever takes over and and that when I look back it's partly a really supportive thing but it's also partly not because it uses all of your skills and knowledge to prop up their organ- the organisation and the person that takes over, who was wonderful. She was really great and we get on, re- you know, don't get me wrong. But I really should have then thought about ill health retirement and I should have worked with my organisation to back me on leaving at full-time nurse director level because that's basically what AML did to me, killed my career as full-time nurse director. And that's what I'm, I have, must, I must admit, I've... Um, I've sat tight and I wouldn't let them reduce my hours because I, you know, a year ago, even before COVID, I knew that I was working my way back down this route. Um, and um, as I say, COVID's been a silver lining because it has meant that I've been able, I mean, I have had sick time through the last eight, you know, 12 months, but um, on the whole, I've been, because I've been at home, not commuting, not get, you know, not having to sort of go through the, the sort of um, day-to-day commute and all of that that, and everything that that brings, um, I've been able to sort of take some time off and then come back again. But yeah, I I I very definitely felt that I wasn't willing to, for anyone to reduce my hours because I don't know what your personal circumstances are, but obviously I'm on my own and, you know, it's only me that's paying the mortgage. And so I've, um, I suppose you, you try and be sensible as much as emotional about it, don't you? I must admit, it's taken me a long time to come to terms with, and, I, and I'm saying it like I have come to terms with it, but I haven't really. I don't, it wouldn't be what I'd be wanting to do. No. I love my job and I love nursing and it really saddens me that I'm having to do this. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I expected to retire in my mid to late 60s, not in my early, 50s but yeah and it's only when I got that second diagnosis and COVID really and I could look back and see that I'd barely been in work you know in work in three years hardly at all and although you can keep going to a certain extent both in a leadership and a practitioner role behind the scenes you can't do that long term no. when you're never with a patient or a colleague and that's yeah. you know how it 
And I think now with my current predicament that who knows how long, you know, whether this is a cure, I'm de- definitely heading towards second transplant. And who, how, who knows how much time that will give me. And I think I do not want to spend that time, you know, tired, fatigued, trying to work. I want to spend that time with my family and for those with things that matter. So I think your, your priorities change, don't they? They do change. And the fact that um, statistic that sticks in my mind is about it's still only 50% of people live more than five years from diagnosis. And that's what that also in my head now I've got right two years left. You know, I might, hopefully I've got a lot more than that. Hopefully I'll be in the good 50%, the lucky 50%. But, you know, you we don't know that anymore. But to I don't want to put you off about <laughs> going that maybe we do need to stay on the call and have a proper talk. <laughs> oh my goodness, the the fight you have to do to prove. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, my, yeah, I am hoping everyone says they're very supportive, but uh, anyway, I'll uh, I'll see I'll see what <laughs> what transpires. I'm I'm right at the start, so good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you both brought up some really fascinating things that I'm glad you've mentioned the financial impact as well I don't think that's talked about enough I mean with everything else going on I think it's well known that not being able to financially support yourself is a stress of its own and to add that on top of anything I'm, I'm sure that's been really really hard for you guys just to say also I've applied for uh so I applied for PIP first time round, got it and then obviously didn't need it anymore I've applied for it again due to the myasthenia um, and it's taken them nearly four months even just to get the paperwork back to the DWP and I still haven't got a, a, you know, a result and I've got to add this now relapse onto it. You know, that's not great. Also, I got a, something called um, employment support allowance for people listening that don't, you know, know ESA and I ended up with a nearly £400 bill at the end of it because you have to preempt what you're going to be paid. If you over-egg that, then, and they pay you too much. So I went back to work on phased hours and then I had a, uh, you know, the, the DWP chasing me for money. So e- either way you do it, it's not brilliant. Trudy, I mean, did you have any support from the government or other ways would you like to see more support for for people in your situation oh a hundred percent I mean we had to we we still had um huge amount of our mortgage left we were expecting to be paying that for another 10 or 12 years and I was the main breadwinner I am married and my husband um what does work but he's certainly not enough between us to pay for the mortgage and everything else so we had to arrange to have interest only mortgage so that we can manage and that's what we're surviving on but even now you know as I said to you I'm looking at next month not even knowing what my income is whatsoever which is just ridiculous so I don't know how what we're going to be like then but no financial impact's been massive and there's been no help at all and obviously from um I think it was an 8D full-time 8D down to you know a 15 hours a week as an 8A so that was a huge change in salary 
And that's in turn affecting my my um, pension, of course. Yeah, I have got, um, I've requested a pension forecast just because I've been p- sowing the seeds a little bit in the last year. Now, I don't know what, you know, eventually will be agreed. And I don't know what tier this means that I would be on. But £900 a month, uh, because I've been in the NHS for 20, yeah. nearly 25 years. So not I haven't got a full pension. So they will give me a, a payout of something like, say, 30000 and a monthly income of £900. I mean, that is just, yeah. it's, you know, I, I, to be honest, that's why I've put it off for so long, because I just thought I can't afford to live on that. But now I've just decided that, well, I'm just going to have to make it work. But that's the sort of, and hopefully maybe I get pit that can, sort of bolster it up a little bit above but yeah it's it's not good it's it's it puts you uh, you know your health is not good and it puts you then financially at risk your house at risk and and you know just when you don't need it yeah exactly just at the point where you don't need it I think is it is exactly the point yeah Ladies, it's been a fantastic conversation, but we have sort of run out of time. There was 101 things I wanted to ask about your transplant and things like that. Maybe we can come together another time because it genuinely, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. And yeah, we, maybe we'll have to hook you guys up after, after today's podcast. But yeah, thank you for your time and um, hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.